Build up your team around you. Allow for experts to be experts. Get that knowledge. Find a good running coach. Find a good sports dietitian. Get good teammates and try to maximize as much as you can. Welcome to Power Up Your Performance, where we talk about how you can learn to think, feel, perform, and live like a champion. Hey everyone, welcome to Power Up Your Performance. I'm Kim Peek, a movement and mindset strategist with a passion for running, triathlon, and all things fitness. You know that it is my mission to get more people moving, and I don't really care how you do that, whether it's five minutes at a time throughout the day at work, or maybe by taking on something big, something that seems impossible like doing a half marathon or a marathon or even jumping into the world of triathlon. If a marathon or half marathon is on your bucket list for the fall, you'll want to start training within the next few weeks. So I would love to be your coach. I would love to help you through the process. Send me an email and we can chat. We can even get on a uh, Zoom call or just a regular phone call to talk. And you can email me at coachkim at thepowerofrun.com or take a look at my coaching programs at crushingmygoals.com. And after you take a look at that, then reach out and we can chat. I am here for all of you and I want to help you be your best. So this week, I'm excited to share this interview that I did with Rebecca McConville. Rebecca is a registered dietitian, and she's a board-certified sports specialist and eating disorder clinician. She has spent her career helping athletes fuel and understand their bodies so they perform their best. She is also a former collegiate athlete and the co-host of the podcast Fit for a Queen, a podcast devoted to female athletes who want to have it all, performance, health, intellect, and time for themselves. I will put all of those links in the show notes, and I hope you enjoy this interview because I think we are going to touch, I know that we touched on some really big topics that are important to all athletes, but especially to younger athletes, things that maybe moms and coaches want to keep an eye out for as they're teens are pursuing any sort of sport. Welcome to the podcast, Rebecca. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Oh, me too. I'm so excited as well. So will you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Okay. So I'm Rebecca McConville and I wear a couple different hats. I am a certified sports specialist dietitian but also a certified eating disorder dietitian. So I kind of like to look at it as I am a person that explores the relationship one has with their food and nutrition strategies, with their body, with their performance, with body image, and how can we make that best suit for them. Nice. And you've worked with some pretty impressive clients in the Kansas City area, at least. Can you tell us who some of those big name clients are? Sure. So um, I spent a couple of years with the Kansas City Chiefs, um, have worked with the Kansas City Ballet. 
um, UMKC. And then um, sometimes I serve as like a specialty consultant for other universities around if they're having an athlete that's struggling with an eating disorder. Um, and then Summit Volleyball, which is club volleyball. And then all my um, individuals I see in private practice, I, I cherish them all the same and very grateful for the opportunities that I've had. And did I see that you were a collegiate athlete also? Huh? I played basketball. Basketball. Okay. And now you also run, correct? Yeah, run for fun. And then had coached my daughter's basketball team for three years, but um, I'm ready to transition that to somebody else and just be, just be mom. I, I do help coach uh, the girls on the run team. So we will be having the big uh, 5K tomorrow. It looks like the weather's going to be great. That's awesome. Do that. So, I mean, you just kind of transition in your athletics all your life. And if the time has um, enough windows that you can compete, great. If not, then you just wait for another time. Yeah, I agree. So I am excited to talk to you about some of the common ways that you see nutrition affecting female athletes. Mm-hmm. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about just just what are why why should especially high school, let's say high school track athletes, be mm-hmm. concerned about their nutrition? Oh, a multitude of different things. One, you can't really find accurate information on the internet. So if somebody was to look up, I'm a 15-year-old that transitioned from cross-country to track, what should be my energy needs, they're, they're going to be hard-pressed to find any accurate information. So one of the things I feel like a lot of female athletes, as well as male, is they tend to be underfueled and they go off their weight status or performance to be a guide for that, and that's not the case. It could be that their body is compensated their metabolism slowed, so their weight is stalled. And we really kind of want to take that to, you know, a nice sports car, V8, running as fast and as hard as it it can. Um, The other thing is, uh, especially those busy school-age kids and parents that are trying to feed them, um, they may not have a whole lot of time to sit down to eat. So it takes a lot of strategic planning. Like, okay, if I only have 20 minutes in the morning, what can I grab and go? What could be in the car? What can be in the locker? Um, being able to get something in before practice. So setting a good nutrition foundation as well as that recovery window so that their body is able to heal from that workout and start um, getting prepared for the next one. And I think that's so important because I'm not sure that especially high school athletes are given a lot of instruction about what they're supposed to eat. So I think you find probably two extremes, you can tell me, but I think you see the kids who are just out there eating all the junk food and fast food and don't really put any thought at all into what they're eating. And then the other extreme where they're over controlling what they're eating. Do you see that? Oh, exactly. And I mean, I even fell victim to that when I was in college. I was like, well, I'm just going to start exploring what I eat and does it affect my performance? And I mean, I started feeling great. I was at the the top of the pack when we had, um, <laughs> we had a coach that tend to like endurance running, which was strange for basketball. So we actually had to do like timed two miles and all of a sudden they went from like mid to back of the pack to the top. We were supposed to be able to bench press our weight, was able to do that. But I kept kind of pushing the envelope. Like what if I do a little bit more? What if I do a little bit more? And then all of a sudden I was getting thrown around on the court Um, was finding I would be super sore after workouts, which wasn't normal. And so 
I'm sure you're going to ask hence where I came up with the name of my book, Finding Your Sweet Spot, is that it really is that fine line of where you can maximize your fueling, maximize what you can do with your body composition and still perform great and not cross over into that extreme and a lot of those high school kiddos, they um, they get information from all over, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're trusted um, professionals that should be giving out advice. So that, I think that's one of the biggest things is to let let the professionals do it. So your book is called Finding the Sweet Spot, and it is about relative energy deficit in sports, Correct. which was previously called female triad. Uh huh. Yes. Okay. Can you explain to us what that is? Because I think this is something that maybe we've heard the term, but not very many people really even understand what it is or why we should even care. Well, and one of the reasons I wrote this book is I don't think people have. I think first, it's a good thing if they even know what the female athlete triad and what that was was a cluster of symptoms seen. Um, if a um, athlete has had a significant weight loss. Um, stress fracture, and then amenorrhea, which is the loss of menstrual cycle for more than three months. So it was kind of narrowed in that window. Um, but one, it obviously disincluded a huge group in our males. And then there's so many other factors that can be impacted if we're not getting enough energy in. So the key is, and I use a lot of analogies in my book, is that it's not so much how many calories you're taking in and how many calories you're expending. It is how much energy is left available to do regular body processes. So digestion, um, storage of nutrients in our liver, our immune system, um, training adaptations. Those require extra energy when we've done a really hard training because that's what builds up our glycogen. That's what creates more mitochondria in our muscle. So if we start to not have enough energy available for those, those things just start slowly slowing down. Um, and so one of the first to go is reproduction because the body's like, hey, that's not necessary. So you'll see um, dysregulation in a menstrual cycle first, then it actually will be shut off. For the males, they actually have a drop in testosterone. The digestive tract may start to work sluggish. So I've heard common complaints that people will get full quicker um, or they'll start to have trouble digesting food they didn't before. So what do you think their first thing to do is? cut out foods um, when really they probably shouldn't have gone that route. And then you'll just see a slow change in their mood. In, in Europe, they actually, in their training logs, which I know you do such a great job of, uh, they actually put in their training log what is their valent mood when they get up, before training, after training, because they look at that as a huge risk factor for overtraining syndrome. Very interesting. So do you suggest then that athletes should track their resting morning heart rate? Is that a thing that you have them track to be, be able to see if they're starting to get into an overtraining situation? Or yeah. does that not really relate to this? No, great question. You're, you're spot on. Um, I have them actually use a couple different data points. So get that first thing in the morning, resting heart rate. If it's at overtraining, it actually will start to creep up. Because when they're sleeping, that means that that body is having to work harder to repair and probably needed more rest. Then have them take a look at kind of their baseline resting heart rate throughout the day. 
what is it doing during training? And then what is it doing right after training's done? So if it is a healthy heart that is fully nourished and fully rested, it can get pretty darn high during a workout, but it'll quickly come back down to baseline after training. If it's under rested and under that again, kind of wreaks havoc on that body after the recovery. So then would you also say that if you see an athlete who wears a heart ma- heart rate monitor while they're training and for a certain type of workout, if you can see that you know that their heart rate is typically at a certain point and then over a course of a week maybe you start to see that for the same type of workout, their heart rate is getting higher and higher, would that be another case that maybe there's something going on with their body and they're, they are lacking the energy that they need? It could be. So if they're not bumping up the amount of work and not bumping up the intensity, it sounds like they're having to exert themselves even more, which that's another red flag. And that's something I commonly ask my athletes, like, okay, especially runners, it's kind of easy to go off. Like on a scale of one to 10, how hard are you having to work to maintain that pace? And so if previously they were able to work at a six or seven to run you know, their mileage pace, but now they feel like it's a nine or 10. Well, that shouldn't make sense. They should be progressing and getting more fit and it should be easier, not harder. And so you kind of need to do a little bit more screening. So same thing with like the heart rate data. Okay. So speaking specifically of high school age runners, they aren't typically as in control of their lives as like an adult woman would be because they have coaches telling them what to do and maybe They're getting their lunches out of the school cafeteria or, you know, going out with friends. What kinds of things should the athlete and their coaches and their parents be looking for as red flags or warning signs that there's something going on that they need to address? So in the the psychological component, it's usually, um, one, a change in mood or affect when it comes to training. Are they isolating from their teammates and families? Then at home or in front of the coaches, if we're seeing changes in what they're eating or if they're not eating with the family, start to ask them why. And then, of course, if you see any significant weight changes, we have to be very cautious at that high school age that we're not imposing any kind of weight bias on them when it could just be natural puberty But if there's a significant change kind of exploring, especially if there's any other behaviors that could match up with that. And then lastly, and probably I should have put this ahead, is if we're seeing um, repeat injuries and repeat injuries that are not healing like they should, that's another red flag as well. And what kinds of injuries could be caused by this? You mentioned stress fractures before. What else would fall under that? Well, it's really cool. Um, About six months ago, um, Children's Hospital in Boston, which is also the hub for the female athlete clinic, um, they started exploring connective tissue type injuries, including ACL in that group, because what they believe when glycogen starts to get lower, our coordination, our stability um, goes down, which puts us more at risk for those types of injuries. So they're linking low energy availability with those injuries now. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So how does nutrition affect something like a stress fracture? What is there a specific nutrient they're not getting enough of, or is it just lack of calories or how does nutrition tie in there? 
Okay, so all the above. So when we don't have enough energy, especially those sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, they're shut down and lowered. The bad side, really bad side of that is they're very bone protective. They drive bone growth. So I, I like to use the analogy of like picturing a PVC pipe. So you've got the outside of the PVC pipe that we need it to be nice and tough. And then in the inside, picture tons and tons of little cobwebs. Well, that's where we have nutrients, blood flow, oxygen. And if we don't get enough nutrition, the inside of that starts to get weakened. And that's typically where we see the stress reactions that then can form into stress fractures if that stays inflamed. Calcium and vitamin D are really important because one, calcium is going to form the crystals to help develop the bone. Same thing with vitamin D and phosphorus. So then if your body's not getting enough of that, it will kind of leach and break down the bone to get those nutrients. And you aren't usually deficient in those unless you're specifically cutting out those food groups like dairy and nothing, or again, just overall nu nutrition if you're not getting enough energy in it doesn't matter how perfect you eat <laughs> the dogs agree it's okay i know she is busy watching something today i don't know i usually don't have to put her away when i talk on the phone okay so what else can we learn about nutrition in general what are some of the things that people athletes commonly maybe misjudge or do wrong when it comes to tracking their nutrition or just figuring out what they need to eat? So two things, <laughs> they either make it way too simple or they make it way too hard. So you have the other spectrums that are just like, I don't care about nutrition. It can't impact my performance. So they, they just go ahead and eat on a whim and they don't focus on getting lots of fruits and vegetables and lean proteins. Or the other side is that they want to scrutinize every last little thing that they're eating, thinking that's going to benefit or trying to explore every supplement when it's like, no, just get it balanced. So I really like the, the USOC, the Olympic Committee came up with these athlete plates. So it's much more simple. They can do it at home. They can do it at school. They can do it when they're traveling on the road. If this is a light day, a moderate day, a really hard training day, this is how you should load up your plate. These are the things that you want in. And I, I, again, take it from there and say, let's aim to have four colors, four colors a day on your plates that are going to help you with recovering nutrients from those fruits and vegetables. Let's aim for three times a week. You can say, I know that I got a good omega-3 in from fish um, or from plant sources and say, check, there helps my inflammation. And did I get enough hydration? Can you take a Gatorade bottle that's 24 ounces and monitor that throughout the day? That's one of the most simplest things to do to um, monitor your performance. That is an awesome suggestion. Now, I have started reading your book, but I haven't gotten all, okay. the, way, all the way into it yet. But I know that you also mention fitness trackers and what some of the problems are. People mm -hmm. think that tracking their food through a fitness tracker is a solution for making sure that they're getting enough calories or I prob think probably more frequently they're using that as a way to make sure they're cutting enough calories. But what yeah. are some of the things that you see as being problems that we need to avoid when using relying on a fitness tracker? I think that's the biggest key is the reliance that's on them. 
and rather than trusting that gut instinct with their body, they're going off their watches, their heart trackers. And we know that even the best top grade product can still have a 30% error rate. And then we need to look at that individual. I mean, yes, you put in your height, your weight, your age, but there's still going to be a lot of different variances when we look at genetic, what is somebody's more natural weight. And I use that because I hate BMI and ideal body weight. Um, and then again, using that as just a data point. So you brought up the heart rate monitors earlier, and I think those are great to be able to collect. But then we have some athletes that are so sticking to their heart rate ranges. Um, when most research says that those are great, but still the just good old fashioned rate of perceived exertion has been one of the best training monitors, um, even aside any expensive technology that we can go to. Yep. Very good point. I was thinking also related to BMI, we talked when we got together recently about dancers and how a lot of times it's so important to dance companies that they want their dancers to have a certain look. And in some cases they rely on BMI. And can you tell people what would be wrong with going strictly off body mass index? Well, I laugh. I've struggled to find the actual article again, but the two summer Olympics ago, they were pulling up the data on how many of those summer athletes by BMI categories were considered obese and overweight, and only a small percent were considered within normal limit or um, underweight because it doesn't take into account the muscle mass. It doesn't take into account your genetics. And so, um, you know, this is a whole nother podcast, but we're looking at that health at every size movement. And I just think you cannot go off of weight to directly say their performance. Yeah, I I understand there's some to that power to weight ratio, but when you're talking about a dancer and you're going aesthetic driven BMI goals, but yet then they start to dance poorer because they're so tired or they're injured all the time. Well, what's best for that dancer to have them look a certain way, but dance cruddy (laughs) or to have them be stronger and healthier. Yeah, switching gears slightly over to running, I'm sure that being a runner you, and being in the industry that you are, you've probably seen some of this, but I heard a great interview recently with Ryan Hall, who is the Olympian, super yeah. awesome marathoner, where he talked about how his last several races, he was so focused on weight that in trying to cut weight, because generally people tell runners that, you know, you're going to run faster if you weigh less. Mm -hmm. And he realizes now since he's retired that his last several races, he ran at too low of a body weight. And because he was not fueling his body properly for the demands he was placing on it, he wasn't running as well. Yeah, exactly. So Again, in my analogies, I start to talk about like you have these backup reserves that the body can use for energy. And so the first thing it goes after is our body fat. But remember, that is essential fat that is there to help us absorb fat soluble vitamins and do other functions. At some point, it's going to put the brakes on and then it's going to start to use our liver. So for a runner, that is their kick at the end. Um, that is their ability to keep their brain engaged in their activity so they don't feel so sluggish. And then last but not least is muscle. 
So I'm betting what happened for him is the more that he tried to push it past that point, ha, his sweet spot. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> he ended up not using body fat anymore and was actually using his muscle for energy. So he lost his stamina, he lost his strength, and that's why he ran slower. And he talks a lot in lots of interviews I've heard where he knows that he had a low testosterone issue while he was a competitive runner, which is exactly what you're talking about with Red S Mm -hmm. or as one of the symptoms for men. Absolutely. I have a good buddy that I presented with that was, um, had played in the NFL and he jokes in our presentations that he's like, I knew I was in trouble when I fantasize more about eating a pizza than the hot woman at the bar. Oh, that's and good. That was from his testosterone being so low and being so underfueled that, I mean, you end up losing the libido. That's one of the biggest markers for underfueling. So are there any signs that are obvious for, let's say, a master's runner, somebody who's 40 plus? What are some, are there different signs that they would look for compared to what a high school girl would look for? You know, not necessarily. Um, It could be, again, the weight shift. If it's not matching up and they're trying to continue to do things to manipulate their weight, but instead they're gaining weight, that could be something. Obviously, if they're not having their period, which I would think at 40 they still are, then maybe go get labs checked. So make sure that you have a good baseline lab assessment before you start a training program. Maybe do it midway or at the end and see how your body's handling that. But it all goes back to nine times out of 10 when I can finish my assessment and get them to relax and talk to me. They saw signs along the way. There's just a justification for it, which our social media does a great job of, you know, making sure Google Doc will answer it for you. But then they're like, oh, yeah. Like Ryan Hall said, there was a point where I knew that I actually probably had pushed it too far. So moms are typically, they, they are just exhausted and they have a lot going on. They're trying to do their careers and take care of their families. And so exhaustion and just being tired and not feeling like you have the energy to make it through your day might be just something that most moms think is normal. Right. But if they are also an athlete or trying to work out, would you say that a symptom that maybe they need to go talk to somebody who knows more about this, like somebody like you, might be that they're putting in all this energy training, but they're not seeing any of their performance indicators budge. So maybe you're not getting faster, you're not gaining strength, you're getting more tired, just all of those things. Right. Um, The other thing too, is there's a difference between getting up and then rushing around and getting tired throughout the day versus waking up exhausted. So I'll ask them, like, do you find that you need more amount of sleep to feel the same rest? And they'll be like, yeah, or I don't feel rested at all when I wake up. Well, that's concerning because that just means that that body cannot keep up. And then it probably you're calling on your adrenals to try to get up enough um, for drinking a bunch of caffeine throughout the day. Um, and then it should match what you're putting into that workout for better performance. And if it's not, yeah, you got to take a look, step back and say, what am I doing? That's not working. Okay. So now I'm sitting here thinking, start to feel like this. And so most people, their first thing is they make an appointment with their primary care doctor. Right. And that primary care doctor is so rushed 
they don't have time to pay attention to all these symptoms. And they're either going to shove you a bunch of pills or tell you X, Y, you know, something else that maybe doesn't even get to the root of the actual problem. Yeah. So how does somebody go about digging deep enough to get diagnosed with something like this or to know what they truly need to do to get to the actual cause and not just keep putting band-aids on the problem? Well, I mean, she almost plug again <laughs> at the end of the <laughs> Thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> there is actually a checklist that I encourage them to do at least three times through a chaining season um, that goes through all those different variables that could be impacted by low energy. And so that's something they could take into the position and be like, okay, these are all things that are continuing to occur or are new that are occurring um, that I think something's off. Can you please? And then maybe they even show them like the previous couple ones. Like I didn't have this one before and I didn't have that one before what's going on. And so it gives something tangible to, to show to them and just continue to be your best advocate demand that that doc sits down and listens to you um, or find one that um, we have some great sportsmen physicians that are trained in that as well. I love the idea of having a document that you put yourself through a little questionnaire that you put yourself through a couple of times so mm-hmm. that you can actually track all these little things that maybe you didn't even know you should be looking at throughout the season. I think it's a great idea. And that is in your book. Yes. Great. All right. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't? Um, just like, like you, um, if anybody wants to learn more, I'm a, have a fellow podcast that we're going to get you onto. Um, and it's called fit for a queen, but it's P H I T, um, which is for the female athlete trying to balance performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self. So we've had just a gamut of different topics too. And what is your website address so people can find you? Sure www.beccamccombell.com. So B-E-C-C-A-M-C-C-O-N-B-I-L-L-E. Great. And I will put all of that in the show notes so people can find it. So my last question, I always close every interview by asking this one. Power Up Your Performance is all about helping people learn to think, feel, and live like champions. What are three traits that you believe all champions possess? Oh, I love this question. Um, I think one, they have to trust the process. So you encircle yourself around a coach, a teammate, your parents, your friends, and you put the time in. And I think the biggest thing is taking that leap of faith and trusting that all that hard work is going to pay off and you're going to end up with the outcome that you have. Otherwise, you're going to overanalyze it and end up undoing or pushing it too hard um, and end up injured. The other part to that is I think build up your team around you, um, allow for experts to be experts, get that knowledge, um, you know, find a good running coach, find a good sports dietitian, um, get good teammates and try to maximize as much as you can. It's amazing to me how many athletes will get so far in their career and they, they've never used a dietitian. I, I got that a lot when I was in the NFL. It wasn't until they were a veteran that they finally wanted to listen to what you have to say. And then they're like, God, I wish I would have known that, you know, six or eight years ago. I'm like, well, but no time like the present. <laughs> and the other thing is, I think, having fun. 
we have to stay attached to what drew us to that sport to begin with. Um, because if we don't, then it's hard to push it day in and day out. And you look at the faces of champions and they're usually so exuberant and so radiant because they really love what they're doing and it pays off at the end. Wow. Those are all such great, great answers. I wonder if I should start off all of my interviews with those questions. Cause I always think of 10 follow-up questions just based on the responses. So I love that. Lots to think about. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. I'm Coach Kim Peek of Power of Run, and you can find me at www.crushingmygoals.com or on all social media as at sign Power of Run. If you liked this episode, be sure to give the podcast some love over on iTunes and remember to subscribe. As a new podcast, your reviews and stars and subscribes will help me grow the audience so that I can share my love of health and fitness and bring more experts to the show. Power up your week, and I will catch you next Tuesday.